Howdy, friends. Welcome back to Experience Design with Tony Dosat. I happen to be Tony Dosat. Whether this is your first time tuning in or you've come back for more, I want to thank you for joining me. And if you find value in what you're hearing, please do take a moment to subscribe and leave a review. It's always greatly appreciated. And with that, what do you say we jump into the interview? Okay, first of all, Jorge Arango, thank you so very much for being on the show with me today. Thank you, Tony. It is a real honor to have you, and Jorge is the former president of the Information Architecture Institute, a renowned speaker and co-author of the fourth edition of Information Architecture for the Web and Beyond, or as most would probably call it in the field, the Polar Bear Book, as well as the author of Living in Information, Responsible Design for Digital Places, which was released last year, 2018. And I would highly encourage all of you to read this book. And if there were um, a stronger word than encourage that that wouldn't sound forceful, I would use it here. (laughs) Implore you. How about that? I would implore you to read this book. It made a huge impact on me and, and how I think about not only design, but really the world around me, which we'll get into the book. But first, Jorge, here we are. Hi. Could you please share with us just a little bit about how you got started in this industry and how you got to be where you are today? Sure. So I got into computers very early on. I I think I, I am part of a generation of folks who grew up, probably the first generation of folks who grew up with computers as playthings. And when I was growing up uh, in the mid to late 70s is when personal computers first came to the fore. Uh, Before that, uh, computers were big, you know, hawking things that occupied entire rooms and buildings and which were operated by folks in lab coats uh, with slide rulers in their pockets and all those cliches that uh, (laughs) that we've heard about. (laughs) Right. But they were the the, the domain of a select few. And in the mid to late 70s, there was a movement um, to bring the power of computing um, to the masses, tapping into the, the revolution that was the microprocessor. And I grew up during that time, and I was very lucky that my grandfather was an early adopter of these technologies mm. and introduced me to computing. So I grew up trying to learn how to recreate the video games that I was uh, so obsessed with um, at that time. So I, that's when I got introduced to computers. And like many people, I went through a phase in uh, my teen years where I kind of rejected all that stuff that that I had embraced as a child Mm. and I went off and studied architecture I I thought that I was going to be an architect for a living and something curious happened to me when I was in architecture school which is that that's when um, when CAD software started becoming accessible for folks and I kind of rediscovered computers at that time, and these two passions of mine—the you know, the, the design of of environments and computing—came back together. Uh, fast forward a couple of years, when I graduated architecture school, about a year after that, or a couple of years after that, 
is when the World Wide Web first became mainstream, became popular. And when I saw that, I decided to, I decided that that's where my calling was. And I left my career in architecture and started what ended up being the first web design studio in, in my part of the world, uh, which was kind of a, a, in retrospect, a crazy risky thing to do because there wasn't even commercial internet access there at the time. Wow. I ended up designing the first website for the first ISP, the first commercial ISP. And uh, I've, I've been getting into it more and more ever since. I, of course, haven't regretted that decision. Uh, to the contrary, I think that the web is the, and the internet in general, but the web specifically are the most important inventions, um, I would say, of the last few centuries. And in the web, I saw the opportunity to marry these two domains, architecture and, and computing, which I had, you know, had been such an important part of my life before. So that's how I got into it. I have a bit of a tangent, and it just popped into my head. When, when you talked about the web, about being one of the most important inventions, I couldn't agree more. And with that, though, I think about how beautiful it can be where we are talking right now, we're states away, and we're recording, and people will be hearing this all around the world. And that, that brings sort of a, a beautiful aspect to the internet. But there's also a very dark side. And is there a way to avoid that? Or is it just inevitable with things that are this powerful? The, what's happened with the internet is that everything has unintended consequences, right? And what's happened with the internet is that it has democratized the ability to for people to publish information. Mm. And what democratizing means is that everyone gets a shot at it. Publishing information used to be something that was the domain of the select few. And there were uh, all these barriers to entry that meant that there was... Um, in the system, there were these inherent uh, filters that would keep you from from most of the stuff that that most of people's thinking, right? Like you would only get access to the things that publishers had deemed worthy, whether we're talking newspaper publishing or magazines or books or what have you. Mm. And what's happened with uh, the democratization of technology is that everyone gets um, gets to have an equally powerful megaphone. And I think that it was Umberto Eco. I, I'm not going to quote him verbatim, but he made the point. He, he kind of very unkindly said that, uh, like, the village idiots used to be able to express themselves at the local bar and it wouldn't uh, go further than that. <laughs> uh, but now everyone has access to, you know, the, the, the same technology. And that is incredibly powerful. And I think that we should not discount the the power that that brings, but we also need to acknowledge that that brings with it um, unintended consequences, such as the, the fact that um, these things can become perfect Petri dishes for the spread of misinformation or ideas that may be mimetically powerful, but not useful or truthful or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. There are positives and negatives to all new technologies, and that just happens to be the trade-off with this one. So, like I said in the opening, huge fan of the book, and of course, when we talk about information, as you state in the text, one might think of information as anything that helps reduce uncertainty, 
so that you can make better predictions about outcomes. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to elucidate for us by telling us about Bumpkin and his poop routine. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the the uh, example that I used to illustrate this idea that because the thing is we bandy about words and information is not the only one but it's it's uh, it's one that is kind of central to us, right? Mm-hmm. Um we bandy about words that we kind of toss around casually without really digging into what they mean and Information is a word that we are used to encountering and using all the time. We're, we're said to be living in the information age, and we are the beneficiaries of something we call information technologies. And in using these words so frequently, we tend to take for granted that we understand what they mean. So it was important if i was going to be addressing this this subject of information and the designing of information environments um i wanted to make sure that i try to pin down th- what i meant by information and that's easier said than done because there are several meanings to information some of them quite technical mm. and the one i arrived at is this idea that information allows us to make to act skillfully let's let's say that right and the and the example that you're alluding to from the book is that i have a dog his name is bumpkin and i walk bumpkin around my neighborhood and i live in a kind of suburban neighborhood with houses that uh, have front lawns as is kind of typical here in the in the US and some of the houses around the neighborhood have uh, little signs on them that let me know whether or not the owner of the house is okay with bumpkin pooping on their yard basically right I, i'm sure you've seen these the little um, you know no pooping icons right yeah and uh, those signs are an example of information and what and what they're doing in that context is they're letting me know that the owners of those houses uh, are not comfortable with me letting my dog go on their lawn right so with them providing me that piece of information i can make a a skillful decision about whether i let my dog go there or not and i can predict the outcomes namely if i let my dog uh, poop in one of those yards that have the signs on them i may en- i may encounter a an enraged owner right like uh, the, the owner of the house might come out and shout at me or something mm. Uh, and the other the, the other houses the houses in the neighborhood that don't have signs on them i don't know whether or not the owners are okay with me letting my dog go on their lawns they have taken no position on the matter right so it's not like it's not like they're saying it's okay for you to let your dog go here it's that they are not um, they're not taking a stand one way or the other and because there are these signs in some of the other houses i can assume that that means that they are okay with it but uh, the situation is somewhat more ambiguous right so so i think those little signs are a good example of of information yeah when i first read it i was like all right this is the perfect example to get this thing going you mentioned that you are an architect by trade originally and when when i think about architecture design versus um say digital design the iterative process for architecture has been millennia whereas when designing certain digital experiences the iterative process is a lot more rapid 
Is this a blessing or a curse? Uh, I don't know if it's either. I think it's inevitable because the technologies that we're dealing with are not that old, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would say that design, like if, if you kind of think about it, not in the context of whether we're talking about designing a, a shelter or where, whether we're designing a website, design itself as a practice is something that has been around for a while. And the approach is applicable to, to any area of human concern, whether it's, like we said, shelters or software or a cup. I have a teacup in front of me, and this is a designed artifact. And the, the means by which you arrive at that form are pretty similar, regardless of the domain that you're focused on. Is perhaps the objective when designing architecture is to build something that will last quite a while. And by weather, by time, by usage, there is a redesign that might happen. Some foundation, some walls, drywall, etc. A, a host of things. But the objective is this thing's going to last a really long time. With digital products, a lot of times it's we need to get something out to beat competition or we need to address this in the market. Let's get it out by the end of the year and launch it. So the objective isn't something that necessarily has a, a, a lasting um, effect or foundation to it. Yeah, no, I, I see where you're going with it. And and the, the root of the issue is in a word that you used in, the, in asking the question, which is the word product, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the, and, and here we're getting into the kind of central conceit uh, of the book, which is that we have, well, the, the, first, of, the first thing is this statement that, uh, that Mark Andreessen used a few years back in that Wall Street Journal opinion piece he published um, titled um, Software is Eating the World, right? Mm. There's this idea that software is incredibly powerful and it's increasingly taking over different parts of of human concern right or, or 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 serving more and more of our needs and um encroaching upon domains of human concern that have otherwise been served through other means so um software becomes central to transportation it becomes central to financial services it becomes central to healthcare and little by little it's um well, it's not not little by little. Actually, sometimes it's happening in, in really big steps. It's um, <clears throat> kind of uh, permeating our, our experiences. And the way that we have framed the design of digital things has been primarily through the um, analogy with products, with physical products. And if you listen to the language we use when we talk about these things, we talk about designing digital products, mm -hmm. or or sometimes you'll hear people say, "Well, uh, I'm designing a service, mm -hmm. or interactions, right, or experiences, right? Like the right. Uh, this idea that we're designing our experiences." And if you think about the the language that we're using, and, and by the way, I'm I'm very keen on language. You have to pay attention to language because it gives you clues as to how we're thinking about things. Right. And the language that we're using when we're talking about the design of things that we experience that are based on software, it's all transactional and ephemeral, 
right? So products are things that are meant to be used and uh, interactions are, are completely ephemeral. They're things that like you and I are having an interaction right now, mm -hmm. right? And um, at the uh, end of our time together, we're, uh, we're each going to go our own ways and um, this interaction will be over. So it's, uh, it's kind of transient and, and ephemeral. And that is that I stand in in contrast to architecture, which, as you point out, and by architecture here I mean the, the design of buildings, which has aimed to design things that last, right? Like that stand the test of, uh, of time. That's not to say that there aren't products that stand the test of time. I'm very interested in those. Sure. Um, I'm taking notes right now from our conversation using a a pen that I love. It's a fountain pen made by uh, Lamy. And the design for this pen, this pen was designed 60 years ago, but it uh, looks very contemporary if you were to look at it. Um, I'm very keen on, on products that stand the test of time and, uh, and I like to surround myself with them. But, but for the most part, when we think about products, we, we are thinking of things that are meant to be used up and somehow discarded. And the, the reality is that for many of the software-based things that we're making, the way that we are using them is not like products. It's not like this pen that, I ha that I'm holding in my hand. The way that we're using them is more like places in that we are going there to hold, to host our interactions, to serve as the context in which we work, the context in which we plan, the context in which we learn, the context in which we shop, the context in which we, some people meet their mates there, right? Mm -hmm. And we are approaching the design of these contexts, these environments, as though they were products. And one of the side effects of this is that I think that they're, they haven't been serving us very well as contexts. Um, and I think that uh, folks have been coming to that realization more and more, especially over the past, I would say, three to five years, you know, all this discussion about the, the influence that hosting civic discussions has had on our politics, for example, mm -hmm. uh, is something that people are starting to, to wake up to. When um, you design an environment as though it was a product, And, and the motivations for the design of that environment are uh, incentives, for example, that aim to keep you engaged with the thing. You're going to produce very different outcomes than if you were to design an environment that is meant to be an environment, that is meant to host our interactions with each other. That leads really perfectly into my next question, which points to the latter half of the title of the book. What do you mean by responsible design? And how might we design responsibly? I'm increasingly drawn to systems and structures whose design goal is to stand the test of time. There is a, a, a book called Finite and Infinite Games. I, I don't know if you're familiar with this book. And it's, a, it's kind of a quirky philosophy book, but it's very practical philosophy. And we're going to go into a tangent about philosophy. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of philosophy. I think a lot of people misunderstand philosophy. And uh, and that's because uh, folks in academia have made it difficult for, for people mm -hmm. to understand philosophy. But philosophy is really about having uh, a conscious approach to how you live your life, right? And this is a, a, a kind of quirky book about philosophy that posits that there are two types of games what the author calls games, right? There are two types of games. There are finite and infinite games. 
And the distinction is the following. He says that finite games are games that we play with the purpose of winning. And infinite games are games that we play with the purpose of continuing the play, of keeping the, the game going, right? Mm -hmm. And when I talk about responsible design, I mean design that acknowledges that the thing that we are making is going to have an impact into the environment in which it's being deployed. And we all have a responsibility to each other and to the people who are not here yet to keep the game going, basically, and to not put things into our environment that will compromise our ability to do that. Too many of the things that we see out in the world have been designed, driven by incentives and reasons that are considerate only of short-term near goals, near near to the, the organization that, that is creating the thing, without much consideration to the fact that the thing that they are making might end up compromising the broader systems where the thing is being deployed into. I'm very happy to see that that is changing. It's changing in digital. It's changing also in physical things. So, for example, um, in, uh, in industrial design, there's been quite a drive to make products that are more quote-unquote green, right? Like this right. is the, the acknowledgement that we can't keep putting things into the world that will end up in, in landfills um, and that won't uh, degrade gracefully. And uh, there, there is a, a growing recognition that we need to have a similar approach when it comes to designing digital things as well. Things that uh, stand the test of time and that allow us to keep the game going, basically. Before I ask you my final question that I ask every guest I have, where can people find you, get the book, and connect? The best place to find me is my website. It's uh, jarango.com. So that's my first initial surname, .com. And from there, you can find links to the book. I also have a blog, which I try to keep up to date. Um, you, you'll also find links to my Twitter account and stuff like that. So that's definitely the best place, jarango.com. Okay, so now for the final question. What object or thing that you own that's non-digital means the most to you or has impacted your life the most and why? Well, that's such a great question. I, uh, I've already spoken about this uh, Lamy pen, which I, I wouldn't say that that's what's impacted my life the most, but I do think that... Uh, it's up there. That it, well, it's important to surround yourself with things that you find beautiful and useful, and in my case, things that stand the test of time. But I, but I actually, I, I, I want to tell you about the, the real answer for me, which is it's a book, actually. And it's a book that, for me ties together several several stages of my life in a very kind of neat way. So I told you earlier that when I was a kid, I got into computers. And I got into computers because I wanted to m make video games. And kind of serendipitously, I, I, I ran into this book called The Art of Computer Game Design by Chris Crawford. And Chris Crawford is one of the original video game designers. He, he designed games for Atari back in the day mm. and he wrote this book this short book and I bought this book thinking that it would show me the like programming techniques and that I would uh, you know learn about 
sprites and and um, and making uh, animations and and, and um, uh, collision uh, detection uh, algorithms and all that stuff, and and I got it thinking that that's what it was, but it wasn't that. It's it's actually a primer on design <laughs> and what design is for, mm. and and uh, not only that, but um, the book also introduced me to the idea of taxonomies, and it has like a taxonomy of, of video games as they were at the time. And it's a it's a very short book, but it's a very interesting book, and it and it has a case study on one of uh, Crawford's video games uh, that he designed, and it kind of documents his entire design process. And this was one of the very first formal introductions I ever got to the design process and um, some of the trade offs and constraints and opportunities that arise when you're designing something. And I must have read this book at least two dozen times, right? And I was really kind of obsessed by this. And um, fast forward <laughs> a couple of decades, actually, uh, and I was the program chair for uh, the IDEA conference, which was a conference that the Information Architecture Institute used to put on. And there was one year when I was the, the chair for that conference, and I was looking for guests to uh, invite to speak at the conference. And I had a friend who knew Chris Crawford. So I reached out to Chris Crawford and invited him to come speak at the conference. And he did. Oh, wow. And I was very excited to, to meet Mr. Crawford. And I, uh, of course, I presented him the book, my very ragged, torn copy of, of this book. And um, he autographed it for me. And uh, he wrote a very nice inscription uh, in it. I, I mean, I told him the story that <laughs> of what had happened. So... Um, to me, it, 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 that, that book kind of brings together like my early, you know, this, this part of my life where I got into computers. And it also kind of brings it back into the information architecture thing and, um, you know, and, and, my, and my speaking and participating in the community and stuff like that. That is really special. It was probably like meeting Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> um, one more time, it's Living in Information, Responsible Design for Digital Places by Jorge Arango. I want to thank you so much again. I really hope we can do this again. You inspire me, sir, so thank you. Tony, thank you so much for having me and the show. It's been a pleasure. Until next time. All right, friends, with that, we will call it a week. Again, I want to thank my guest and thank you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you did, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening. Also, if you want to look behind the scenes and have even more design goodies in your face and in your ears, you can follow Experience Design on Instagram at xdpodcast. Until next time, friends, stay curious. Experience Design with Tony Dosett is part of XD Media, LLC. All opinions are my own and do not reflect those of my current or former employers. Hosting and publication of the podcast is through Buzzsprout.